0: Filmically speaking, I think that I see things visually. You know, I see every scene, every colour, all of that is immensely important to me, which is I think why people say I can really see and smell your books.
1: I'm Diana O'Connor. Welcome to the Dingle Lit Podcast. Each year, at the end of November, Dingle Lit Book Festival brings together a unique weekend program of events in English and Asgwelga on the Dingle Peninsula. In this episode of the Dingle Lit Podcast, we'll be revisiting an interview with Carol Drinkwater from the 2021 Festival Weekend. Drinkwater became famous for her portrayal of Helen Harriet in the BBC television series All Creatures Great and Small, and later began writing children's books. After moving to Provence with her husband, filmmaker Michel Noll, she enchanted readers worldwide with her quartet of memoirs set on their olive farm. Carol spoke with interviewer Paula Shields to discuss her fourth novel, An Act of Love, a sweeping love story set in the French Alps, with a Jewish family seeking refuge during World War II. Let's join them now as Carol reads from the opening passage of the book.
0: out maritime France, the present. The temperature is falling, evening settling beyond the window. Darkness soon, a darkness that will enshroud me. I start to shiver, not cold, but fear, fear for what is to come, and yet ready, so ready. A tall figure rises from a chair which creaks, He tucks the bed covers tighter about me, encasing my useless legs. Calm, Mama. My breath rasps, sawing at my lungs, burning my bronchioles. Let this be over soon. Please, let this be over. How is she? I catch the words from across the room. A little restless. She mutters to herself constantly. I can't make out any sense. A few words, nothing lucid, except Papa's name. She repeats it constantly, calling, calling without voice to Papa. Does she need anything? What could she need now at this stage? A little water, perhaps? Dab her lips, Albert. Here, let me. Another figure moves to my side, leaning over me, leaning low wetting my mouth with the feathery touch of her finger. I taste the salt of her flesh. Sarah, Sarah, can you hear me? It's Hannah. Is there anything you require, my dear, dear friend? Anyone you need to see? She waits. I can't respond. I have no strength. Is there anything holding you back from your journey? I smile, always thoughtful, always ready to lend me a hand ever since the beginning. I lift my fingers a few centimetres to caress her. The effort overwhelms me. My arm flops back to the mattress. Forgiveness, forgiveness for the many mistakes I've made, clemency for the man I killed. Yes, I killed a man in cold blood What would my sons think of their old dying mother if they knew that truth? In spite of the circumstances, I have never, never spoken of that occasion, never divulged it, that unerasable moment from my story of so long ago.
2: Thanks, Carol. Why begin the novel there? You have a very interesting quotation at the beginning, um, from Graham Greene where he talks about a story having no beginning and no end and how you know arbitrarily one chooses a moment you know you could have gone straight into 1943 but first of all we have Sarah this old bedroom ridden lady
0: um I the beginning was one of the toughest bits for me I I wrote it almost last this uh, this book ending of the beginning and the end. I knew where I was going, sort of. I mean, I never know entirely where I'm going. I was feeling the dark for my stories, but um, I couldn't decide where this book should start. And so I decided to leave it. I made, I had oh dozens of beginnings and I set them all aside and then decided to make the journey with Sarah and see where it took me. And then when I got to the very end, it became obvious to me that I needed to introduce her as she was departing. Uh, it just felt right, but only at the end. I, I certainly didn't make that decision early on.
2: The book is set in the alth Maritime, which is the region of France you've lived in for some time. Would you set the scene for us? Describe that landscape and that medieval stone village that Sarah's family come
0: to. Um, uh, uh, Yes, the the village is based on, it's inspired by a true story when uh, in 1942, um, in November 1942, when the Allies won North Africa, and it was obvious that they would be crossing the Mediterranean to attack the Nazi control of France, both from the Normandy side and from the south side, um, it became apparent at that time that all the because many refugees. This is this was the free zone, all this part of France, and there were many Jews living quite openly, semi openly, on the coast all along that Nice Nicewa coast, all the way to Italy. Um, And this small village, and one of the things that astounded me about it, which is about, in those days would have been by the old (laughs) cranky old bus, about two hours inland, really going up into the mountains, the lower Alps, um, about two hours at that stage. And they voted unanimously, unanimously to take in refugees. They were about four or five hundred in the village inhabitants. Basically, agriculturalists living off, you know, goat farming or a little bit of vineyards lower down, olive trees further down. But they were very simple, ordinary people. And they decided unanimously to take in refugees. And so, as of November 1942, they were beginning to bus up people, Jews, mainly Jews, from um, around the Nice area to get them to safety before the Nazis took over that eastern part of the free zone. And I was so taken with the generosity and the the forward thinkingness of of an entire village, because it was a death sentence to take in a Jew, to give any kind of harbor to a Jew. Um, And I was so taken by the sheer generosity and courage of this, that I started to investigate it. And I thought, okay, I will write this story from the point of view of a a Jewish family, and mostly from the point of view of the the daughter of a Jewish couple, the 17-year-old Sarah. Um, And then I went back into the story and started uh, looking at the area, which I already knew. It's up at the uh, Parc de la Mercantour. It's a very beautiful part of France, Uh, quite unknown really compared to, certainly in my part of the world where everybody, you know, flocks to the coast and to the beaches and the bars and all that kind of stuff. And there, inland, you have this astounding national park, which is part Italian and part French, and the borders have changed over the years for various reasons. um, and up there you have wildlife, there are wolves, there are, oh, I think something like 248 varieties of plants that exist nowhere else in the world, um, and small hilltop villages that reside and, and, and nestle within this amazing uh, national park, um, and I thought it was uh, just the most beautiful enchanting area for me to discover too because I'm further south closer to all that you know the flesh pots um, and I thought it was very wonderful to have the opportunity for me to go up there and learn about the flora and the fauna and the way of life up there and the hunting and all that sort of thing so it's been a real treat for me to spend time up there too and begin to smell all the scents and the eagles that come overhead and the towering mountains where they make a kind of amphitheater it, it, it's a very very beautiful part of the world and quite unspoiled
2: one of the things I was by reading the novel is the fact that it is in the free zone it's Italian soldiers not the Nazis they're the allies but they are quite a different thing aren't they
0: this is one of the other things that I found very remarkable is because Hitler was by that time running short of men, you know, cannon fodder, though, of course, not cannons at that stage. But, you know, he was running short of men and to run Germany he was taking all the French young French men on on a, um, a have uh, I, you know, they were called to work and they had no choice if they didn't run away. So there was a great shortage of men. So he needed in order to police this zone, which was completely unknown to him and his German soldiers he decided that the Italians who had owned this region and were still, Mussolini was still hoping to get it back, he said, called Mussolini uh, <laughs> on his mobile and said, will you go in and police this part of France? And it went almost to, towards Marseille and up towards the Savoy area further north. Look after it for us so that when until we get there and we can, you know, you can get a handle on those Jews who are hanging out down there and get these French who are not paying any attention to the rules, you know, get them to, to toe the line. Well, the Italians had absolutely no interest in, in chasing the Jews. And so even though they, in 1942 in November, when uh, the Allies took North Africa, the Italians started to move into um, into southern to this Eastern part of Southern France. What was interesting is that that part of France until 1860 was Italian though of course Italy was only founded in 1860 so the two things and Garibaldi, who founded Italy is a Niswa he was a Niswa man he came from Nice so um, the Italians historically knew this region very well and had a great sense you know a feel for it and many of them of course when they walked in as soldiers had family there <laughs> Bienvenuto. you know they were calling to their to their namesakes you know come and meet your family and everything. so it was not at all as hitler had hoped they weren't and into this village they sent up this wonderful village where six to seven hundred refugees moved in on this village of four to five hundred people so there was really a, a a balance where there were more refugees uh than um Than locals. And then there were Italians who took over the best hotels, chatted up the girls, um, enjoyed dancing with them, maybe having affairs with them, you know. Um, It became an extraordinary triangular. Um, exchange of peoples there were the Italian soldiers who were meant to be policing the area there were the locals who had generously and and um, uh, you know cautiously uh, taken on all these people and put them into hiding into places where and well they went into hiding once the Nazis started moving closer and the and the Jews who spoke many languages your north mainly eastern European languages and could communicate with each other in Yiddish of course and then began to learn French and they started um, piano clubs and chess clubs and there was this extraordinary interaction this tapestry between all these different peoples and none of them had any any you know fight with the other that that what they feared was the arriving the arrival of the Wehrmacht and the Gestapo who were all the time in the shadow of this um, 10 months between November 42 and September 43, when they did move to that part, of, they did um, invade this part of France, and and the Jews had to make a run for it, but I won't go into that, because I don't want to spoil all the story. Um, You know, it was an extraordinary combination of people within a war, and wartime and war zone, were actually opening up and sharing their different cultures with one another and falling in love and doing all the thing, you know, eating together, enjoying the local food, such as it was at that time, learning each other's language. And I thought that that was such a remarkable moment that I wanted to write about it. I also wanted to write about a young, a girl, on the on the on the brink of womanhood who has as you say all those desires wants to fall in love has everything within her is opening and you know the sap is rising and there she is caught in a war zone and a wartime situation with her parents being very cautious and she just wants to step out into life and she could be a refugee today. I mean, I actually watched when I was in Greece, where they take in many refugees, they have been exceedingly generous, um, and taking far more than many of the other countries in Europe, and are way down by it. I watched a, um, a, a, a Syrian family, and I spent um, 10 days on an island, Castellorezzo, which is a kilometer or so from Turkey, and they got themselves over to this island in the hope of getting on to Germany and I, stud- I watched them for about a month and or 10 days or something and there was a young girl amongst them and that in a way was part of my trigger I was thinking you know she was in her in her Muslim clothes and her her garb and everyone else is in bathing costumes listening to a kind of reggae, uh, reggae music and all that kind of thing and drinking wine and stuff and there's this young girl and her family huddled together in one corner uh, at part of the old um, old steps of the island and I, I began to try and ask myself what was she thinking? Where did she think she was going? What were her dreams? What did she think of all these more open people who had more, let's say, opportunities than her? Or did she think they were, we, everybody was decadent? And that really, that and the history of this, of this um, village, I put the two things together and that's where I created my book.
2: The Rosenbaums, they come from Poland. Sara's father's a doctor, a surgeon, so he has a kind of status and he's certainly useful in the village. They're given a house to stay in. And Sarah, I suppose, understandably, because she's left a life behind as well. So she's very sensitive to previous histories. What can you tell us about that White House and the people who were there? And, you know, it's a kind of mystery. So obviously we're not going to give any game away. But could you set that up a little for us?
0: Yes, uh, it, when the, all these refugees arrived into the village by bus, there was somebody there to greet them. And now they had to they had to rent. They weren't given places. They had to rent oh. um, what they had. And, and if they didn't have enough money, then there were there were um, funds set up to help them. So it wasn't about fleecing. them. It was about everybody give and take and and you know funds to help them. So um, everybody who got off the bus was allocated a place to stay, um, and they arrived by, they arrived in, in February, early March um, of 43. So there'd already been five months of the shunting of all these Jews up to this area. So most of the, um, most of the uh, accommodation had gone, and of course the Italian soldiers, most of the accommodation had gone. So this is a, this White House is set just a kilometer outside the village, which is quite a way, considering it's quite a small village. Um, I, 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 I've invented it, it doesn't really exist, this house. Um, and now the village of course is bigger. Um, so I invented this place and I gave it to uh, the ownership to um, an English couple, because before the Second World War, this area of France for the very rich was becoming a kind of summer um, watering hole because those who felt that it was too hot down at the coast or indeed that it was getting rather vulgar with you know the new tourists coming in they bought themselves a second property up in the hills where it was cooler which is what the French also do they go up into the mountains in the summer the local French so I thought it was rather nice to give that to an English couple who were Basically in the film industry, just because I wanted to, I always like to paint a little bit of my own background and if I can into that. So they're rather glamorous as a couple, though, of course, Sarah doesn't get to, well, I won't go into that. Um, She just finds lots of photographs of them and these wonderful, um, of this kind of perfect life. That they had living in this house before the war, and and um, she begins to fantasize and relate to, and wish to meet these people in this what was once what was a kind of glorious Art Deco house that they built for themselves, or we assume built for themselves. So it's a kind of mysterious and rather glamorous um, uh, um, opportunity in Sarah's mind to also step outside the you know the 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 situation that the rather impoverished situation that she and her parents find themselves in while the father is all the time trying to find a way to get them out of france and the mother is hankering all the time backwards to go back to poland sarah just wants to live in the present so you know the three members of the family are all actually living in different time zones um i liked the idea of creating this kind of white house i want to go and live in it myself (laughs) so that's the white house
2: I think we all do it's a lovely work of imagination, um, one of the strengths of the novel is the village life Carol and I wondered how much research did you do into this period versus how much is based on just the fact that you live in France, so you understand the local festivals and, and just local community life
0: well of course um living there over for over 30 years now has kind of soaked into me like a you know I'm like a sponge and things move kind of I take them all in and everything um but I did do an awful lot of research and mostly my research was on stuff like the price of of food, what was available, um, what was available on the black market, who was working the black market, all those kind of things. I mean, that was all very important. The actual military stuff, which doesn't interest me that much anyway, because I think that's more kind of, it's not my thing all the military thing. I'm much more interested in the emotions of the people and the landscape. They're, they're really the my inspirations. So I did a lot of research into that. I did a lot of research into what was possible to grow, what was being um, transported by night you know, what kind of people, how, et cetera, et cetera. That was the, my area of research um, so that I could very clearly get right how much it would cost for an egg compared to um, before the war, during the war, once the Jews arrived. And of course, one of the interesting things which I hadn't thought about at the time was that, um, you know, these people reared pigs and sheep and goats. So of course the Jews didn't touch the pigs. So it meant that the price of sheep and goats meat rose much more dramatically than pig meat now you know I wouldn't necessarily as an Irish Catholic I wouldn't necessarily have thought of that immediately so that was a little detail that came up in my research and you know who had chickens and all those kind of things that you know little details and and it's all that that I loved love to research I have great fun doing all that I spent months over it
2: You really place us there, you know, we've got the sense of the flora and fauna uh, and all kinds of things, and I wonder how much does your acting background feed into your writing in a sense that you want to give a kind of vivid sense of place?
0: I think it's essential. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I, I, I didn't I didn't train as a writer in the conventional sense that many writers might've gone to university, studied literature or French or history or whatever it is that they, they study and work their way into literature from that point of view or nonfiction. Mine comes from the inner life of people. Though the drama school that I went to, which unfortunately has now closed um, and it was a kind of golden 40 years of the drama school um, was very much we learned, we were trained and, and studied from the beginnings of drama, Greek drama, all the way through. So it definitely has a very, it had a very strong uh, line in teaching about drama and storytelling, um, the dramatic arc. And of course, character, characterization. So I think my um, my training as an actress, my training specifically, and then my work as an actress, my years of experience as an actress, most certainly uh, colours the way I write. And of course, filmically speaking, I think that I see things visually. You know, I see every scene, every colour, all of that is immensely important to me, which is, I think, why people say I can really see and smell your books, because I think that is, you know, and that's my, my film training, my film director training um, comes into play with all of that.
2: So Sarah gradually makes friends her own age. You know, she meets Albert, she meets Sylvie, she meets Alain, she gets to know the local school teacher, some of the, the grown-ups in the area as well. And there are tensions in the village. It's not a perfect place, but in a sense, Isn't she living in two clandestine worlds, Carol? You know, one is that of the refugee, that shaky framework. And then the other is the teenager who is growing away a little from her parents and who does is going to have secrets.
0: Absolutely. And that 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 is one of the for me, one of the pivotal um, interests in the book, you know, is that I very much wanted to create. Um, I mean, I'm very interested in that particular period of time in one's life. What I think of as a kind of hinge period, you know, the 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 move between childhood into adulthood. That those wonderful four or five years of adolescence, I I think they're rich with with material, and I, that's why I love writing for young adults as well. Um, uh, what I love about it is the uncertainty that we all go through. I mean, there's, there's perhaps no period except for drama of course I mean uh incidents can can create uncertainty but but for almost All of us, that particular period in our life brings up, you know, if it's spots or menstruation or the worrying about our physical body. Is it too thin? Is it too fat? Do my parents embarrass me? You know, do my friends want me? Am I attractive? Uh, Did he kiss me? Will he kiss me? All those. There's a million questions that we're asking at that particular time in our lives Um, and desperate to find some kind of answers. And once you find them, the questions change and I love that I think it's a really um, you know um, important time and also it's moving all the time it's you know it's transitional constantly you you know you think you've reached something and then you haven't and even when you do get to womanhood then you've got a whole load of other things to start dealing with so I'm totally fascinated and I wanted to put a young refugee girl, I chose girl because I relate to women and girls of that period more than I do boys. Um, I wanted to put a girl, an uncertain girl into an uncertain war situation. And as I say, it could have been, I mean, if I'd said to my publishers at the time, I'm going to write a story about a Syrian girl coming, I think they'd have gone, no. (laughs) And so I I kind of covertly wrote it, if you see what I mean. I mean, sorry. Yeah, Sarah is Jewish, but she could have been Muslim. Mm-hmm. She could have been, you know, she could have been African. She could have been from any, any particular sect or religion, you know, Catholicism too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, goodness gracious, <laughs> what I went through to step out of that and beyond it and then take it back on board as something that works for me. You know, that, that kind of area is something that I wanted to investigate and I hope that I've also addressed in the book.
2: Certainly. I mean, it's impossible not to read Sarah's recollections of that perilous journey from Poland and not think of those scenes pre-COVID that were so dominant on our news bulletins of, you know, those little boats coming across the Mediterranean, just to how huge that crisis is and how intractable it feels. And certainly an act of love is very aware of the lot of the foreigner, you know, how vulnerable a refugee is to the kindness of strangers. But there is certainly that in this village. I felt you did want, it was a kind of hymn to village life as well, and to a quiet heroism on their part.
0: I want to tell you, uh, if I may, a little story. I've been filming um, a six part series for Channel 5 in England called uh, A Year in Provence with Carol Drinkwater. I know they stole Peter Mail's title and I begged them not to, but they did. And I didn't win that battle. Anyway, it's called A Year in Provence with Carol Drinkwater. And one of the, um, and it's about places in the south of France that have been inspiration for my books and our lifestyle and all that kind of stuff, you know, and food, all the things that television viewers like to watch. One of the episodes was going to be partially set in this village and we went up I went up to the village um, to film for one or two days up there and I took the crew up there and introduced them to various people and um, it's not they've cut it now for technical reasons nothing to do with the story but while I was up there I bumped into a woman quite by someone said oh that woman's grandparents hid jews And so I stopped her in the street. I went, hello, hello, we're filming. Will you come and talk? She didn't speak a word of English. So the whole interview was in French, which of course is difficult for Channel 5 because it means subtitles and there's a limit to how many subtitles they will allow per episode. So I sat with this woman for 20, 25, half an hour perhaps. We sat on a wall she told me her name and I said tell me about your grandparents and she her grandparents in the village looked after four Jewish families they hid them in out barns outside the village one family above somehow secreted in their house in the village but the other three families in barns or where they kept their sheep or whatever it happened to be and the these grandparents used to make a tour with their horse and cart and no petrol, and also up there difficult. Once a week, the grandparents or the grandfather used to make a tour of these Jewish families to take them food for the week. And he did that every week for something like 12 months. And I myself and this woman sat and cried and cried with joy and with such a sense of life affirming courage. And they got away with it. They weren't when the when the Germans arrived into the village, and I don't want to talk too much about that because it's in the book. When the Germans arrived into the village, they the Jews had gone and they nobody in their particular circumstances, nobody was found. And I thought, you know, the strain on that family for a year or almost a year, 10 months, up and down to the barns, wondering will anybody report them? Is there a traitor in the village? Is there someone who's going to be uh, uh, you know, a a, a talker to the Vichy government, going to tell on them. So they they had that kind of strain they were living under as well. And the sheer generosity of that, I mean, just made me, myself and this lady who never met before, stood, we cried and then we stood in each other's arms, hugging and crying at the fact that people, you know, and the question I ask myself is, would I do it? Would I have that courage now? How many of us would actually have that courage? I don't know that I would. I hope I would, but who knows?
2: Indeed. Palestine is one of the places that Samuel Rosenbaum, Sarah's father, hopes to take them to. It's one of the places of possible permanent destination. And you know, for a reader in 2021, Carol, your description of it as an exotic mythical land comes as something, it reminds us that there was a time pre the state of Israel and pre that creation of that state. Um, Have you traveled there? Have you been, I know you've written books around the and olive trees and all of that. But I wondered, had you been there?
0: Because, again, you know... I've, yes, I have, and I've made a film set there. I I, I did five films in, in the Olive Root series, inspired by my Olive Root and Olive Tree, two travel books from the Mediterranean. And um, Arte and various other channels, France Sank here, um, invested in making a, a five-part documentary series. And one of the films is called The Olive Tree in the Holy Land, Um, and I spent a lot of time there. I spent time with settlers, I spent time with um, Arab Catholics um, or Christians Catholics, um, Arab Muslims of course, um, and I I spent time with each of these families and we filmed with them uh, and I saw a lot of very distressing. We went to the wall, I saw a lot of distressing um, images and I saw uprooted olive groves. Um, So it's a a country and an area that I know um, reasonably well. I wouldn't say that well. I've been there five, six times and spent a certain amount of time, and certainly when I was filming. Um, I'm one of those, and I know that there's a lot of support from Ireland. Um, I'm one of those that are very much um, vocal, uh, fighting for a two-state solution, I believe passionately that Palestine has a right to its own state Uh, but I also see you know and that's one of the reasons why writing because I feel so strongly for the Palestinians it's also very important for me to look at the Jewish situation and the history and what many of those Jews and had Sarah's parents and Sarah without going into the end of the book got to Palestine got to israel the new um israel founded in in 48 i mean what would their lives have been you know who would they have become where would they stand on these questions you know so that was all quite interesting to me not all of that is answered in the book of course not because Mm -hmm. it's maybe another book, Um, but Hannah, of course, who's at Sarah's deathbed um, at her side, um, is a young Jewish girl who was saved through this situation in the village. So, you know, there's all kinds of dynamics that come from when you write a story. and, And also when you fight for something that Israelis, many Israelis are not necessarily in favor of. Though so there is a loud voice, there is a very vocal voice. In, and I've worked with many journalists and people in Tel Aviv who are fighting for a right for the Palestinians to have their own state. So, you know, it isn't black and white, um, but um, yes, that was pre the state of Israel, the foundation of the state of Israel. And, but it was a place where many Jews and many Jews did flee there, of course, which is why the state was founded.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot more to this novel, and obviously we don't want to give too much away. But I was wondering, how do you manage the various strands of plot when you're writing? Do you have a wall chart somewhere, or do you manage to keep things in your head? Or
0: I don't do wall charts. I don't plot, and I don't do wall charts. I mean, I know... Some people I see all well, their bits of paper before they begin a novel. I, I don't think I'd get anywhere if I had to think about every hurdle. I, I, I suppose it's also part of my training as an actress. I like the organic uh, flow. I mean Marguerite Duras, who's one of my heroines, um, <clears throat> she said that you know writing a novel is like closing your eyes and putting your hands out to the stars up into the sky and hoping that you will actually pull a star down and you can begin to shine it and see what it tells you you know I shouldn't say quite that but something like that um and and I work sort of in that way I work into the darkness and hope that which of course is a very uncertain way of working but I think you either plot or you either dig for it and I dig for it so um it unravels itself I mean then of course in the other in the uh, the the, the following drafts I have to go back and 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 fit together the bits all the loose strands but I think that's true even when you're plotting it you know Mm -hmm.
2: you've written a lot of books up this stage Carol what do you know now as a writer that you didn't when you were starting off
0: well, how hard it is, how extremely hard it is, and how much, um, I mean, literally, phys- I find it quite, I find it physically tiring, you know, you're sitting, okay, you're sitting down, just in a, not prancing around a stage or prancing around Provence for a television series, but it is equally tiring, if not more so, because the level of concentration is enormous, and also, if you're really digging into yourself, emotionally speaking, I find it pretty taxing. So I think I had no, you know, I thought earlier, you'd sit down and write and come up with something. Um, So I think I've certainly discovered that I I, I also now I mean, I think the whole publishing business has changed dramatically, even in the few years that I've been writing, I wrote my first book, uh, which was a a young adult book or a children's book called The Haunted School, I think in 1987 or something. And then we made it into a television series, which I played the main role in. It won awards and things. So, I mean, and that was really very early. And basically I was looking for the television hook at that stage. I mean, that's not necessarily the case now at all, but publishing's changed dramatically since then. And, um, you know, there are so many, like television, there's all these streaming, in the days when I made All Creatures Great and Small, we used to get 23, 24 million viewers, mm-hmm. night, you know, every Sunday night. Now, when Channel 5 came through and told me the figures, I said, Oh, that's dreadful. They said it's wonderful. Because it's just everything has changed. It's all so fragmented now. It's, you know, uh, fragmented. I mean, sorry. Um, everything, there are so many different ways that one can be published. We you can make television programs, you can make podcasts that, you know. Uh, it's not necessarily a straight line and it's not necessarily that you start from being a a beginner and work your way through. Beginners are also doing things and getting huge contracts and all of that so it's a completely different place now. Good or bad who knows I mean I don't want to be the old fogey who said it wasn't like that in my day Um, but you know that they're two of the important things that I, I would say.
2: Did you always want to write?
0: I've been writing since I was about eight and I was first published when I was 10. I wrote a piece for a, a magazine called Girl, we were living in England at the time, um, called Girl Magazine and it got published and I got a five shilling postal order through the, through the mail. So um, yes, I've been published for a long time.
2: You changed your life radically, you know, over 30 years ago when you settled in the south of France Did that feel like a huge risk at the time, Carol? You know, I was thinking about Sarah. She wants to stay where she is. She's falling in love. She's making connections. But I was thinking for you, did that feel like a huge gamble?
0: Or were you ready for change at that point? Oh, I was not just ready for change. I was determined for change. Um, I'd made two big, big um, life-changing, location-changing decisions in my life. I grew up in, in England, in Kent, To an Irish mother and a partly Irish father, so I'm. uh, Ryan Ryan Tubridy was rather surprised when I said I think I'm five eighths Irish or something like that. But I, in my twenties, I was never, I was never comfortable in England. I never felt the place I would end up. And so the first choice I made in my early twenties or mid twenties or something was I decided that I would. Take the Irish passport that I was entitled to. So I made the decision to choose to be Irish rather than English. It's nothing to do with getting a European passport, way before all of that. It was where I felt um, I felt connected to Ireland rather than to England. I mean, I'm not against the British, that's not that, but my my mother's soul and um, the part of my father that comes from travelers, I think. Um, connected to me much more profoundly than England where I never felt at home so um, that was my first big personal location decision making decision decision Um, and then of course uh, came and I got myself a little place in Ireland and then of course came um, the meeting of Michelle or I was looking everywhere for a house by the sea and I thought it would be Ireland I thought it would be Ireland, Uh, but I looked in Australia and all over the places where I was traveling and working for what I called my house by the sea. But it was only when I met Michelle, who's now my husband, who I met in Australia, and I was thinking of staying there, though I hadn't found my house by the sea. Um, And he said, immediately asked me to marry him on our first date. Um, And uh, I came back to Europe because that's where I was working and where my main career was in England. And he said, come over to France. And so that's when I started looking. He was going to Cannes for the film festival, television festival. And that's when I started looking down there. But um, it's always been a it's been a a tough call between England and uh, between Ireland and France for me. I I, I never bought a place in England. That's not true. In the end, I did. Yes, in the end, I did before. I, Yes, I did buy a a flat in London for a a very short while, four or five years. Um, But I've had a place in Ireland for a very long time. And of course, France now is my main home. So I made two. I I kind of went at it that way. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. But we're very happy to claim you, Carol.
0: Well I'm delighted because that's where I feel is my 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 soul home. That was Carol
1: Drinkwater in conversation with Paula Shields as part of the Dingle Lit Book Festival in November 2021. You've been listening to the Dingle Lit Podcast. If you want to hear more, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch the interview online, look for Dingle Lit on YouTube or go to dinglelit.ie for more information on upcoming events. Thanks for listening.